This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by University of California Press. One title that you might like is American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams by Peter Richardson, with a foreword by Mike Davis. Historian Kevin Starr described Kerry McWilliams as the finest nonfiction writer on California ever and the state's most astute political observer. But as Peter Richardson argues, McWilliams was also one of the nation's most versatile and productive public intellectuals of his time. Richardson's absorbing and elegant biography traces McWilliams' extraordinary life and career. Drawing from a wide range of sources, it explores his childhood on a Colorado cattle ranch, his early literary journalism in Los Angeles, his remarkable legal and political activism, his stint in state government, the explosion of first-rate books between 1939 and 1950, and his editorial leadership at The Nation magazine. Along the way, it also documents McWilliams's influence on a wide range of key figures, including Cesar Chavez, Hunter S. Thompson, Mike Davis, screenwriter Robert Town, playwright Luis Valdez, and historian Patricia Limerick. American Prophet, The Life and Work of Kerry McWilliams by Peter Richardson, with a foreword by Mike Davis. Out now from University of California Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm temporarily broadcasting from Santiago de Chile. At New York Magazine, Eric Levitz has turned the hot take genre into something a lot more interesting, providing the sort of consistently thoughtful and deeply contextualized analysis that is often quite hard to find on mainstream news sites. And good news, he's my guest today. And we'll be talking about the increasingly impossible to reconcile imminent contradictions shaking the Democratic and Republican parties. But before we get rolling, The Dig does not paywall any of our episodes to coerce you into supporting this podcast because you, the listeners, support us out of the goodness of your heart at patreon.com slash the dig. That said, we do sweeten the deal in order to get you to make that donation that you've been meaning to make for months. So, if you donate $5 a month, you get access to our newsletter. $10, and I will send you either Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity or Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. If you can afford to contribute $20 or more a month, we will send you a box of left-wing books. Please, take a moment now to contribute at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Okay, here is Eric Levitz, who writes about politics for New York Magazine's Intelligencer. He is, quote, dumber than a catfish, according to the National Review. Eric Levitz, welcome back to The Dig. Yeah, it's great to be here. Reading through a lot of your recent work, you're writing about disparate subjects, but a lot of it, I think, really falls into the category of how imminent contradictions within both major parties are powerfully emerging right now and, as a result, transforming American politics. And then putting all of that within a lot of historical context. 
your takes are of abnormally high quality. So my question is, what is it that you look for to latch onto in this vertiginous 24-hour news cycle that allows you to do such unusually non-amnesiac work? Uh, well, thanks. I really appreciate that uh, description of my project. I think, as many dig listeners will surely know, that there's been kind of a, a pervasive market failure uh, in the, the market for informed political punditry that, that actually really is seriously engaged with not just the surface level manifestations of political conflict that you can register in polls and put into forecasting algorithms, um, but with sort of deeper currents of how interest groups and coalitions uh, form and, and mobilize and, and how our concepts about political reality, how ideology is created and transmitted. And I'm not, you know, the, the most learned person in the world on this stuff, but I'm, I'm more interested in, in actually learning about how, how politics works beyond sort of what one would, uh, how one would, would conceptualize how politics works from sort of watching Meet the Press. And so I, I would say that my strategy is, is simply to try to read as many books as I can, try to listen to uh, audio content uh, like the, the stuff that you produce. Um, and then just fill my head with, you know, these gaps in American history that are conspicuously absent from the discussions that we have about why our politics are the way we are, the, the way that, um, you know, how, how did the border get to where it is and, and how did these communities, why are so many Central American governments, um, you know, sort of failing on a very deep level and, and why are these people coming uh, north to seek help in the United States. What was the U.S.'s role in in creating those conditions? Whatever, just, just examples of the sort of questions that are often not interrogated. And it, even someone like myself who has no uh, uh, formal education in a, a lot of the, the subjects that I write about simply, you know, by taking some interest in it, I'm able to fill my head with information. And then, you know, when stuff happens, I'm able to bring useful or missing context to the conversation um, and in that way sort of contribute some kind of some kind of value, uh, you know, which the digital journalism economy is not structured to maximize intelligent commentary. We're all even the, the best among us are under pressures to produce material on a timeline that, that selects for, you know, sort of glib analysis directed at a sort of mainstream audience or else it an ideological faction that just wants its view of the world to be flattered. And so it's it's a real challenge to not uh, be, be useless, but I, I do my best. <laughs> I mean, the speed and competence at which you both feed the beast as your employer, like so many others, like my former employer, Salon, certainly required, and I very much failed to do. I could not keep up at the pace <laughs> demanded of me. Your ability to do that well, on the one hand, and do this job that's much more interesting and is not, I don't think, what you were hired to do is really remarkable. And what you were spelling out, it seems to, to me, in terms of what your project is, and it does seem to me like there's an underlying project, is that events, as Marx put it in the 18th Brumaire, to a lot of mainstream analysis tend to appear like a bolt from the blue, things that just sort of appear for reasons that 
are unclear and not worth pursuing, but that have a history. And it seems like that's the context you're you're trying to provide. Does a big part of your project, am I right to say that it's sort of teasing out this moment of of crisis and potential realignment that we're in right now? I think that might be a little more specific than I would describe it as. I mean, we're in a moment where the crisis of our republic or democracy or however you want to put it uh, has become visible to a larger section of the population than I think in any time since I've been alive. Um, the, 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 the real, you know, bizarre constructive value of to the extent that this Trump presidency can have a conserve a constructive purpose, it is that he has both um, attracted a record number of eyeballs to the political situation. There's more interest in, in what's happening in politics every day because, as you know, John Mulaney put it, we're, we're in this rolling sort of situation where we have a horse in the hospital, uh, as he has joked about what it's like to have Donald Trump in the White House. Um, but so the, the sort of sitcom premise that is daily reality creates this interest in politics and creates this revulsion from more than half the country and attaches to everything that Trump attaches himself to so that we suddenly have this ability to feel viscerally disgusted um, by American border policy, by America's thuggishness in the geopolitical arena on the world stage. When we had Barack Obama as the brand for all of these various defects. One, obviously, there are huge substantive differences between Obama and Trump, but there are continuities and there are long-running deep problems in our economy that prevent ordinary Americans from being able to exercise anything approximating self-government, that allow our government to commit atrocities overseas that are barely appreciated by the populist uh, who ultimately has some kind of responsibility for it. It's being done in their name. Um, and so you have this audience that is is there now that is watching politics, engaging for the first time, and, and is rethinking a lot of the core assumptions about how, how their government works and how politics works. And I believe that um, I, I see my role as, to the extent that I can, putting this stuff in context, making sure that it is not seen as an aberration. While our current situation is uh, you know, the product of, of, of radical contingency. There's no reason why Donald Trump had to become president. Um, the way that he became president and the way that he is functioning as president is a function of decisions made by elites who are much less uh, garishly amoral uh, than Trump is, but who nonetheless deserve scrutiny. Their decisions deserve scrutiny. The system that allowed them to prosper, deserve scrutiny. And anyhow, I, I see this as, you know, there's an opportunity that Trump presents to really interrogate a lot of aspects of our uh, political dysfunction that have previously gone sort of un, unnoticed. Moving on to some of that political dysfunction that you've analyzed, a lot of which seems to be getting to the end of its rope in terms of having any sort of popular basis for its existence, Let's start with the Republicans. They seem committed to the belief, or at least to publicly expressing the belief, that tax cuts for the rich will be popular. And, of course, they aren't. You write, quote, GOP operatives insisted that the blue wave on the horizon would crest long before November because the Trump tax cuts were about to kick in. But the Trump tax cuts actually became less popular after they took effect. 
and, of course, Paul Ryan's majority drowned in a blue wave. What's more, you write, that those tax cuts stand to become even less popular still because people this year appear to be getting smaller tax refunds than they did in 2018. What's going on in the narrow sense and also in the broader sense? Sure. So the the narrow story that you're reading from is about this kind of somewhat amusing own goal that the GOP has pulled on itself. The Trump tax cuts were a heinously regressive uh, fiscal policy that gave the lion's share of its benefits to wealthy corporate shareholders, wealthy small business owners, wealthy individuals. Um, But it did, immediate term, it did cut most Americans' taxes. It did cut middle-class taxes. Didn't cut them by that much, but it cut them. So in 2018, when polls were looking bad, the GOP convinced itself that once the middle class sees that its paychecks are higher, once they, they get that we've cut their taxes, you know, this is, it's going to, the Trump tax cuts are going to become popular. There's no way that tax cuts could be unpopular. I mean, that's the baseline presumption of their whole party is that everybody loves tax cuts. Um, but to make sure that people notice, because the middle class tax cuts weren't that big, they wanted to make sure that people really saw that, that their paychecks had gone up. And so they reportedly pressured the IRS to, you know, err on the side of withholding too little from people's paychecks rather than too much. And um, the problem that they discovered, you know, was that even with doing that, their tax cuts were not large enough to really be noticeable once you have the rise in, in health care premiums that, that so many workers face and changes in how much they're giving to 401k and everything that between those things, it just didn't really register with people. And so actually, once the tax code went into effect um, and people saw what their tax cut amounted to, um, it actually got less popular. It didn't really help them at all. Now, where Americans do notice changes in the tax code are usually at the end of the year where they get their refund from the IRS. Little changes in the paychecks don't really register, but that lump sum check that they get at the end of the year from the IRS, which a really high percentage of American households sort of uh, plan their whole consumption around this one yearly check. It's, it's for many, it's the largest check they get all year is that $2,000 tax refund that the sort of forced savings that the IRS made them do. The way that the GOP structured it, uh, those refunds are smaller. And so a lot of people who actually did get their taxes cut are now believing that Trump raised their taxes, are believing the most hyperbolic democratic attacks in the legislation. Um, and it's uh, it, it, it's becoming potentially a political uh, disaster for the, the party. Do you think that this suggests that they that this alleged gimmick that they felt that they had to pull suggests that they understand on some level that their tax policies, their tax cuts are not really in the material interests of most Americans and so that they have to make them appear more like they are? So I, I think that they definitely are becoming aware of the utter lack of a popular mandate for their political project. I think that in this case, they were doing political economy wrong, um, that they made a mistake similar to what Obama did during the stimulus, where Obama did a large middle class tax cut. And then his technocratic advisors convinced him that the most efficient way to use this tax cut as stimulus would be to just do a little bit in every person's uh, paycheck, not a lump sum check, you know, at the the effect of that was that nobody realized that Obama cut their taxes because Americans made it as invisible as possible. Right. And and Republicans, ironically, in trying to make it visible, actually did the same thing. They made their tax cut less visible if, if they had uh, 
withheld less, then it might not have helped in 2018, but then people would be getting big checks from the IRS now and would have actually probably thought, oh, well, you know, Trump's don't like everything about Trump, but I guess he did uh, actually cut my taxes. Anyway, so that was just uh, incompetence. As far as the evidence that the GOP understands that the kind of the the game is up, that they've been, uh, their project of upward redistribution has been too successful. Um, They don't really have enough voters left uh, who are invested in it. I would say that 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 was perfectly evident uh, during the lobbying for the tax cut bill in 2017, throughout which, uh, it, as of September 2017, uh, just a few months before the bill passed, Trump was insisting that uh, his bill did not uh, cut taxes on wealthy people. They simply gaslight is used too much these days. But they just they just lie. Um, and, and even it wasn't just Trump. It was Gary Cohen, the Goldman Sachs banker turned uh, head of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors who also said that, that this, uh, our, our bill is not going to benefit the wealthy. There'll be no net benefit for the wealthy in this bill. Um, so their, their understanding that there is no mandate for the kind of fiscal policies that they want to enact, uh, it's not um, ambiguous. It, it's very clear. They feel compelled to just directly lie about it because they, they don't see a political constituency for it. A big part of what's happening to the Republican Party, you write, is that the conditions that allowed for them to suture together this oligarchic economic politics on the one hand and racial and gender and other sorts of reaction politics on the other have begun to erode. We see this in Tucker Carlson's recent monologue and, of course, in Trump's rhetoric, if not his policies. What were those conditions? And I know that you are drawing on dig guests Melinda Cooper's amazing work here. And why do they seem to be coming undone? Yeah, uh, drawing on on Cooper's work, I wrote about how basically during the, the time of the Great Society, you have a plausible argument that big government uh, liberalism is undermining the patriarchal family and the, the white racial order. Um, you have these Welfare programs, which, you know, appear to be um, making women less dependent on male breadwinners for their economic subsistence, uh, and that this is leading to more single motherhood. You see that in its reforms to the welfare system and in the migration of African-Americans out of the South, you now have a much less uh, hair invoke welfare state than you did in the first uh, couple decades uh, after the New Deal. Because the New Deal was structured in all sorts of ways to exclude non-white people from it and to, in particular, to bolster the sort of white male family wage. But then what you're saying is that the, the Great Migration really undermined that. Right. You have, by the 1960s, it's clear that big government can foster anti-normative behavior and challenges to the social order um, you know, tuition-free colleges are proliferating and young adults are becoming less dependent on their parents. Welfare programs are more generous and women are becoming more less financially dependent on the fathers of their children. And African-Americans are migrating north and, and the welfare states becoming more racially inclusive. So in, in this context, economic libertarians or, or fiscal conservatives, the big business right, which has been trying to build, has been funding, trying to fund a, a mass movement against uh, New Deal liberalism for decades, has an opening to leverage organic social conservatism to take that that cultural reaction, that white reaction, and 
wed it to an argument about uh, the necessity of rolling back the state's role in the economy. And there's a symbiosis between these two viewpoints where libertarian economists, uh, as Cooper talks about at length, whatever their personal, their personally libertine or, or just uh, anti-normative views about um, sexuality, you know, for elites or for those who can afford to choose their own uh, adventures sexually, for all of that, they see the family as a very useful social institution, which can provide the social reproduction services that are required in order to reproduce a, a labor force with, at much less expense to the wealthy, at much less expense to capitalists, um, because there's, uh, you know, these, these services are essentially performed gratis uh, by a, a, a subordinated gender class. Then from the, the other perspective, uh, there is this idea that, yeah, if we can get rid of these government programs that are challenging white supremacy in, in certain ways and enforcing school integration, great society becomes associated with the Supreme Court rulings of the time and, and these broader projects of busing and these, these programs that also make women less dependent on men, um, that if we can roll that back, then we will strengthen the family, strengthen the racial order. There's this fusionism of, of uh, conservatism between the social and uh, and economic uh, branches of the movement. You write about how this all comes apart. You write, quote, America's most paranoid reactionaries long feared that big government liberals had a secret plan to coerce urbanization. Market forces and Robert Bork's jurisprudence have achieved much of what Agenda 21 never could. And as they've done so, the rural working class has found the normative family structure harder to maintain. In other words, social conservatives saw liberalism as a threat to their traditional families, and so they hitched their wagon to neoliberal economics. But now it turns out that neoliberal economics has done to them precisely what they feared liberals would do. The problem for social conservatives is that they were always the junior partners in this relationship. The, the business right has always been the number one shareholder in the conservative movement, in the modern GOP. Um, and so when the, uh, the objectives of protecting cultural traditionalism, uh, white supremacy, and uh, the patriarchal family came into conflict with maximizing the liberty of capitalists, the latter took priority. So now we're in this very strange situation uh, politically where the base of conservative politics of Republican politics in the United States is increasingly in uh, rural areas, sort of the less dense a place is, the less Republican it is almost automatically. So you've got capital fleeing rural areas for these coastal Gomorrahs, these cities that represent everything that traditionalist Christians are against. And at the same time, you've got the rise of the millennial demographic within the consumer market. So this, this new generation who brands are trying to compete for their brand loyalty, because if you can get somebody who's in their 20s to decide that, you know what, no, I, I really like that brand of smartphone or, uh, you know, soda or whatever, uh, brand loyalty gets formed, then you get decades of sales. Older people tend to be uh, more set in their ways um, as far as what brands they like for a lot of things. And so there's this conventional wisdom that consumer-facing brands, brands that advertise directly to the consumers, they're most interested in courting the millennial generation. And the millennial generation, uh, because, you know, actually 
freer market capitalism was not wholly incompatible with some kind of social or cultural ideological progress, that younger generation is woke by the standards set by their, their predecessors. And so you have this phenomenon where not only have uh, capitalists abandoned these bastions of cultural conservatism, but they're also publicly flaunting their uh, pseudo-social liberalism. They're trying to associate themselves with Colin Kaepernick, um, you know, with these, uh, these symbols of the other side of the culture war. And, and so it's this bizarre situation where the, the party of corporate America uh, relies on the votes of people whom in their advertising, uh, corporate America is slighting. And so it's just hard at this point for the Tucker Carlson audience, I think, to, to continue to believe that free market capitalism is a close friend of, of their political movement, of, uh, of social conservatism, that there is an inherent relationship between these two things. They seem actually very much in conflict and very much an open conflict. It would be interesting to see you or, or to see someone expand on this insight that I haven't seen before to really try to trace the long-running conservative anti-Hollywood, anti-rap music, the mainstream culture politics to Tucker Carlson's recent monologue condemning market supremacy. Have you, have you read any interesting histories along those lines? I can't say that I have. I mean, I think that American conservatism has always recognized the value in having and in, in, in leveraging white working class class resentment of a very certain kind. I believe it was the neoconservatives who, who developed the idea of the new class, the professional and cultural elite, whom they analogized to, you know, the, the sort of the kind of intellectual class that brought communism to the Soviet Union or, or what have you, this, this new bureaucratic class and these, this certain kind of elite, this cultural elite, this bureaucratic elite, this, this liberal elite, they have for a long time found value in being able to make a kind of upward looking class resentment argument, but that's focused very narrowly on this particular kind of uh, elite, which has you know roots in certain strains of right and maybe even some types of left-wing populism in the United States as far as the producerist ethos that you have, you know, elites who who are business elites who run productive enterprise and you have the hard workers and the farmers who produce and then you have the figure of the, you know, implicitly Jewish financier or this other strata of elite that are against the actual working man, um, but it's because they're a particular kind of elite that is that is bad. And I'm not saying there were more liberatory versions of uh, populism within the populist movement, but but I'm I'm saying that there is long been a thing of that we're going to have an elite that we rally against, even if we are the party of capital. Um, but it's about how tightly they can circumscribe who the bad elite is, and I think they're losing a little bit of control. It's becoming less circumscribed, and and the sort of more general sort of right critique of free markets and of of capital that had sort of been contained in the anti Hollywood. The politics of anti-Hollywoodism is becoming less contained. Yeah, and in certain places, it's coming into open, direct conflict. You know, because the activists push to a point where they really threaten, they threaten businesses' prerogatives. So you you saw this um, a bit in in North Carolina with the trans ban, where you know the the Chamber of Commerce part of the GOP has no interest in in fighting these. Battles and, and they, anyway, this is maybe it's slightly tangential, but but there are these conflicts 
they're very obvious, like in even, uh, you know, immediate uh, in terms of policy consequence conflicts between the part of the party that is his value system is entirely determined by the interests of its, you know, shareholders and the part of the party that is actually invested in in reactionary politics, uh, including forms of it that are actually in certain circumstances bad for capital formation or for attracting capital, at least to a specific region or state. Another interesting point you made about Tucker Carlson's monologue is you wrote, quote, Carlson correctly observed that free market capitalism is deeply implicated in the social decay of white rural America, and that, in hindsight, it was also implicated in the social decay of Detroit and Newark, which is to say, in the very species of social disorder that led many fans of the patriarchal family to embrace libertarian arguments in the first place. I think that really highlights how, how this is a really remarkable moment. There's this emerging split between conservatives who say that poor white people are just as degenerate as poor black people, and those who, on the other hand, once this sort of language begins to be applied to poor white people, felt compelled, like Carlson, to concede that family structure and life outcomes are indeed systematically determined by political economy. Surprise, surprise. My question is, do you think that some on the right, like Carlson, are actually accepting this logical corollary, that they're culturally, if not straight up biologically racist arguments about the condition of black people were wrong? In his monologue, Tucker does suggest as much. I don't think that he speaks for the base of the Republican Party when he says that. So I wouldn't say that it's indicative of a, of a large ideological, uh, a mass ideological transformation and, and a, a softening towards the inner city menace and uh, predators of a previous, super predators of a previous generation. Um, but I will say that it was an interesting feature of Trump's presidential campaign, an odd distinction between Trumpism and Reaganism. There was plenty of anti-black racism, obviously, within Donald Trump's campaign. But it, it was noteworthy to me that whenever he spoke about, however condescendingly, the, the plight of, of uh, urban black communities, he never invoked the culture of poverty. Yeah, he, al- he always suggests that it would something being done to them, to black Americans, not, not in any sort of like plausibly yeah. rational way, but but it was the cause of the condition of black Americans Trump did not locate within black America. Right. He preferred to locate it into the, the bad elites and the bad trade deals, essentially making a very bastardized argument of the disappearance of work, of deindustrialization as the cause of, of, of black uh, urban problems. And also on, on a couple rare occasions, uh, reference the trillions of dollars we wasted in the Middle East and suggested that, that money should have been invested in our inner cities. He had this occasional flashes of, of a very bizarrely progressive narrative about uh, the nature of black poverty and, and what had to be done uh, about it, whereas his animus towards Latin American immigrants was just of a whole categorically different intensity than his Republican predecessors, which is an odd inversion of you know, I, I would argue Reagan, who, right, uh, I believe, you know, launches his campaign in, in, in Philadelphia. Mississippi. Yeah, Mississippi. Definitely leans very hard into 
you know, uh, cultural resentment of the African-American poor, um, while at the same time uh, venerating the immigrant as, you know, a testament to the appeal of the free enterprise system and as, you know, a a, a, a symbol of the upward mobility that, that could be witnessed from immigrants was a testament to the, the functioning of American meritocracy. The immigrant is a, is a good guy, or at least at certain kinds, in, in a fairly wide swath of immigrants, have a, a positive role to play in Reagan's tale of America, whereas in, in, in Trump they do not. And, and I, I don't know exactly how so much of Trump's behavior is, is kind of random, but I do think that a piece of Bannon's vision, to the extent that he has decried that Steve Bannon, his former campaign manager in Breitbart impresario, was that, that, that you could potentially leverage black resentment against Hispanic immigrants to get yourself enough of a share of the the black vote to make a right-wing nationalist majority coalition that could could dominate U.S. politics. So I I don't know how much that's intentional on Trump's part, but there is a, a sort of an idea that that uh, we should reformulate and and try to actually reach some of the black working class in our um, xenophobic cause against um, against uh, the encroaching hordes of third world foreigners. That is an interesting point because that's been a, a long time dream of the nativist right or even native the, the new nativist movement before it was so definitionally right wing was looking at polls that did show black american disaffection with immigration and believing that black americans could be won over in significant numbers to the nativist cause there are a variety of reasons that didn't happen and i believe remains institutionally and politically impossible and I think a few things are going on. One is that black and Latino leaders saw their interests and enemies as basically the same. And two, related to that is the fact that the Republican Party became the political vehicle for brazen nativism and also was deeply hostile to black political interests across the board. So there was never any real plausible political vehicle for black nativism, for black anti-immigrant politics in this country to exist at any level beyond the opinions of particular people walking around with those ideas in their heads. Yeah, I think that's right. And then the other thing is that throughout this whole period until Trump's improbable triumph, you had the establishment of the Republican Party really prioritizing a different, the, the, the exact opposite strategy of Let's um, Im- improve our market share with H- Hispanic Americans, not necessarily by explicitly leveraging their anti-black racism or anything uh, within that community, but by appealing to conservative values that, you know, implicate a hostility towards the poor and trying to make Hispanics into the new white ethnics, basically, that, you know, you you were able to integrate and to enjoy upward mobility and, um, you know, uh, you should therefore, and you have also, you're also, uh, you know, largely Catholic, you have uh, some socially conservative tendencies. And so why, why wouldn't this be the new Republican constituency? And then we don't even need to solve our problem with African Americans. And so I think that the fact that the dominant trend within the party was actually uh, to pick a different minority to target is relevant to the the inability to capitalize on black nativism, although it's probably overdetermined. There's probably a million reasons why that that has not happened. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really, a really smart point. And, and speaking of 
issues for which there is a popular constituency, but no plausible organizational or institutional vehicle. You write, quote, Trump's heretical air invoke liberalism faded after he secured the Republican nomination and thus the backing of some establishment Republican donors. I think this is a really important point. It reminds me of something that I've been thinking about a lot, which is that a more systematically Bannonite Trumpism Maybe something along the lines of the upshot of Tucker Carlson's analysis in his monologue might have been incredibly dangerous. Like, if Trump had done single pair and the wall right away and simultaneously, that could have been very scary. But but that couldn't and won't happen, as you said about another issue a minute ago, probably for overdetermined reasons. There are not institutional or organizational conditions for that sort of ideologically and programmatically consistent right-wing ethno-welfare state politics. And neither, and on top of that, neither, of course, does Trump's mental condition allow for it. As you write, quote, Fortunately, the president is a senescent narcissist with poor impulse control who takes most of his political advice from far-right media. What do you make of this this gulf between the existence of a real underlying constituency for a hair-invoke liberalism, which would be terrifying, and the lack of any plausible institutional vehicle for it. There is often a naivete in political commentary that ascribes policy realignments or major policy developments more generally to uh, some change in the popular will, to public opinion, that proceeds from this premise that we have extremely effective representative institutions that are acutely sensitive um, to the popular will, um, which is, you know, nonsense. It is something that doesn't really exist in any actually existing democracy, um, capitalist democracy, because fundamentally the conventional wisdom of 60% of Americans, what they will tell you if you ask them what they want uh, on the telephone, that how they answer these questions has no relevance to the people who whom they elect unless the ordinary Americans are able to collectivize the costs of actually politically influencing um, politics, which are costs in terms of money and, and attention and time um, into, you know, intermediary organizations like trade unions or other, you know, lobbying groups that can actually pay close attention to what's going on in state houses and in Congress and monitor the wording of legislation and sneak the wording that, that they want into bills um, and pressure, bring, you know, organized pressure to bear on representatives, including through the peer of primary challengers. If there is an organization going on, then it doesn't really matter what voters think um, because there's just the incentives for the people that they elect are going to be to serve the people who notice when they betray them. In corporate America, and the big donor wing of the Republican Party knows when its interests are not being honored. And the average uh, member of the Trump and proletariat does not. So there's, there's no mechanism for change. Now, nativists within the Republican Party are organized. They have institutions. They have think tanks and they have lobbying groups. And they do vote in primaries and do make immigration salient in primaries. And so they've been able to successfully move the party to the right on immigration. But no such infrastructure exists for a hair invoke welfare state supporters. That it's just not there. Um and so there's And even the nativist right has 
has won a sort of Pyrrhic victory in the sense that they have fought so hard to win over the conservative right to their vision of immigration as a danger that they've latched on to potent symbols like that of the wall, which has actually backfired to a certain extent because the wall has, for much of the Republican electorate, to be an end unto itself, when for the nativist movement, it was supposed to be a means of organizing popular opposition to immigration and passing laws that would concretely and dramatically restrict the amount of legal immigration into this country. It's kind of fascinating that they've, the tool to to stoke mass nativism has sort of become more important than the ends to which the tool was supposed to be working. We shouldn't lose sight over that the nativists have made their influence over the party more visible and have made our political culture more grotesque and made life in this country much more dangerous and, and difficult for you know, not only undocumented immigrants, but TPS recipients. And they've managed to create a whole lot of needless suffering. They have succeeded in that, but they haven't actually advanced their their agenda much meaningfully at all, especially where it most conflicts with uh, the forces that they've been fighting against um, for so long and and the same forces that a hair-invoke liberalism would have to overcome. And where it's most conducive to right-wing media, because talking about the wall on Fox News and talk radio is one thing. Talking about third preference immigration visas is another. Yeah, so you haven't actually had a crackdown on employers. You haven't gotten anywhere close to uh, passage of, of restrictions to legal immigration. Yeah, I mean, you see even... In, so I, I, I do think actually, as you're saying, the, the nativist example is actually... I'm not sure exactly how this phrase is properly used sometimes, but, but I think it is the exception that proves the rule that... Uh, you know, even in the case where they were able to get some infrastructure going, they still can't quite. Um, the, the Coke Network's grip on the party's agenda is is still so tight. There are so many people whose livelihoods derive from the GOP donor class, um, which is a corporate, you know, is a is a plutocratic donor class that even they have had only limited success. So I think that does illustrate why this popular sentiment is probably likely to manifest solely in rhetoric like uh, primary era Trump's and like Carlson's current rhetoric, but not actually in policy. You write, though, quote, just because Trump isn't interested in actually implementing liberal economic policies doesn't mean he's done pretending to support them. In fact, if his State of the Union address is any guide, the president plans to campaign in 2020 as an operational liberal and symbolic reactionary. How do you think that will play? And do you think how it plays will depend a lot on who his opponent is? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I and, and by that, I meant that in the State of the Union address, in between doing his like traditional blood libel thing of, of having, <laughs> a, um, you know, the mothers of, of people in, murdered by undocumented immigrants uh, stand up and, and angel moms, the angel moms. Dads. Yeah. In between uh, threatening that if the House performs oversight of his administration, then there will be no peace. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, ostensibly threatening to commit an act of war if, if uh, people keep looking into his taxes. In between that, he did do some normal president who has just been rebuked in a midterm and is uh, triangulating for the the next election 
sort of stuff where he expressed interest in bringing down pharmaceutical prices, investing in infrastructure, and improving the healthcare system to expand access. And then also, you know, talked up his minor criminal justice reform bill and made some weird feints to lean in feminism. And so what I wrote about was that, you know, he's doing um, basically polling suggests that there is overwhelming public support for liberal policy goals when you describe various ways the government could intervene in the economy um, in various ways to progressively redistribute economic resources they tend to attract large majorities of the American public. Whereas there is still, however, a a very significant portion of the electorate, possibly a plurality on on certain questions that will will prefer conservative ideological premises or rhetoric or rhetoric about small government and and conservative symbology in addition to conservative culture war positions. And so you could see a savvier Trump, both governing and and running, and to some extent, as George W. Bush did in embracing Medicare Part D and these other things, doing little incremental liberal, popular liberal economic policies uh, and, and talking sort of softer while still advancing both the, the white nationalist agenda and the corporate agenda. Um, and that's sort of what you could see a, a smarter version of, of Trump's State of the Union speech pointing towards. But I don't think that that is going to be an actual threat, because since he's given that speech, uh, the president has made a number of jokes about the genocide of Native Americans. You know, the guy doesn't have any message discipline whatsoever, and he has made himself, um, he has gone out of his way to needlessly alienate an enormous section of the electorate, such that uh, his attempt to say, oh, you can have, you know, the popular stuff you like about the Democrats, I'll give you too. I'll protect Medicare and Social Security, but I'm not a crazy socialist who wants to abolish ICE and spits on police officers. And that's what the Democratic Party is. Um, you know, I mean, that that is going to be, I think, to a certain extent, his play. And uh, again, as we mentioned earlier, thank God he's not a better politician because it it would potentially be disastrously effective. I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, can I imagine him running that strategy in a race with Howard Schultz and Bernie Sanders and uh, muscling out some kind of minority uh, victory in the Electoral College? Um, it's not as implausible as I would like it to be. Unfortunately not. Uh, Let's talk about who that opponent or opponents might be. Obviously, those of us on the left want a presidential candidate who is maximally class war oriented. And I think that's indisputably Bernie Sanders. But there's a separate question, which is what sort of politics will be most successful? And I think right now at this particular moment that ours would be. But I do want to hew to Gramsci's admonition that we maintain optimism of the will, but pessimism of the intellect, and not be naive to very real obstacles that the left faces. My question for you is, are moderates more pragmatic, as my governor, Gina Raimondo, insists that they are? I I wrote a piece a couple weeks back about what I see as one of the key divides among the Democratic uh, 2020 hopefuls who have sort of really entered the fray thus far, which is one source of real controversy. You know, that there's a lot of overlap even between Joe Biden and Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris when they describe the situation uh, of the American economy. They talk about a declining middle class. They 
generally talk about inequality that is, is too high. Um, you know, the wage growth is too damn low. The health care costs are out of control. We're, we're losing the American dream. Social mobility is down. But where they really depart is whether this story of, of middle class decline needs an upper class villain. Uh, do, do, to tell this story compellingly, do you need to identify who, who the enemy is? Um, and Warren and Sanders, the, what makes them radical, I think, in the view of a certain kind of, of, of punditry or uh, in the eyes of certain kinds of Democrats is, is the fact that they do name a, a billionaire class Warren in her opening uh, in the video that launched her so-called exploratory committee thing, her her pre-announcement announcement, you know, says uh, billionaires. Uh, she just says, you know, how did we get here? How did we get to this point where the middle class is getting screwed over so badly? And she says billionaires and big corporations decided they wanted more of the pie and they enlisted the politicians to cut them a fatter slice. Our government is supposed to work for all of us, but instead it has become a tool of the wealthy and well-connected. The whole scam is propped up by an echo chamber of fear and hate designed to distract and divide us. That's a, you know, a much more explicit class warfare, as Republicans would call it. Uh, you know, I think we'd call it a much more explicit acknowledgement of the existence of an ongoing class war than, than a lot of other Democrats feel comfortable with. And, and Joe Biden has even you know, expressed uh, publicly that he thinks that Warren's Politics are misguidedly all about punishing the rich when he wants to help the middle class, not punish the rich. And also has criticized Bernie Sanders, you know, for questioning the patriotism uh, of America's plutocrats. And then you have this middle ground uh, that I think Kamala Harris occupies where she, when she's talking about discrete economic issues, will make references to the bankers who crashed our economy, you know, got off easy, whereas, uh, you know, inner city kid with the ounce of marijuana, you know, will have the book thrown at them or whatever, you know, by someone like Harris, but whatever. But that's calling out particular criminal, literally criminal acts in some Correct. cases by particular super wealthy oligarchs. Whereas what Bernie and Warren do is say, no, the 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 existence of an oligarchy is itself the crime. Yeah. And, and Harris's campaign slogan is our United States of America is not about us versus them. It's about we the people. And so it, uh, it's a populism without an enemy. Um, it's that the enemy is division itself. That's an interesting positioning. But, but my argument is that uh, all else being equal, it is actually electorally pragmatic to name thy enemy. Um, that, and you have survey data to back this up. Yeah. So it, it's a, my take is derives from the work of the political scientist uh, at Boston University, Spencer Piston, who's... Um, book, Class Attitudes in America, I believe Jacobin also uh, covered last year. I believe that he started with a premise that, that, that he just had an intuition that class is playing a larger role um, in American voters' political behavior than the current academic literature acknowledges. Um, and he looked at the open-ended sections of the 2008 American National Election Studies, which is, um, so every presidential election, you have the AIMS, the American National Election Studies Survey, which is this nationally representative, like authoritative gold star survey. And uh, a lot of political science research derives from, from this. And the one, one of the flaws in public opinion polling is that there's an inherent bias towards, uh, you know, the decision of what, what are you asking and what are you not asking? And so it ends up reflecting what a certain quanti corner of American political 
science thinks Americans are slash should be thinking about. Right. And, um, and, and you know, that there's, there's progress in, in what gets asked, you know, the racial resentment became a concept that we're going to ask questions sort of target to try to see if we can isolate the influence of racial resentment on voter behavior. And, and they started asking these questions, this battery of questions, but they, they didn't do the same for class. They didn't test for class attitudes. The presumption was that if class is um, influencing American voters' decisions, we can get that just by looking at their income levels. Well, what is your income? And if, if there isn't a clean divide where it's like overwhelmingly poor people for one party and rich for the other, then class resentment must not be playing that significant a role in our politics. Piston looks at the 2008 Ains, which um, has, in addition to the multiple choice questions, they have just an open-ended section at the end, which is not as nationally representative as whoever is willing to participate in it, but where they just say, tell us what you like and don't like about Barack Obama and John McCain. Tell us what you like and don't like about the Republican and Democratic parties. There he finds this electorate that is way more class conscious and populist than commentary would suggest that about a thousand respondents fill out this section and well over like 220 in explaining, you know, in, in their own words, why it is that they don't like Republicans. They say, you know, Republicans are for the rich. They only care about the rich and they don't care about the poor. And these, this language comes to them organically uh, from their own volition, whereas they, they actually don't talk about inequality um, as much. Only about like 20 talk about inequality. These ideological abstractions, these sort of abstract questions of how resources should be allocated, that doesn't, doesn't seem to be as visceral uh, to voters as the, the, the sense that there is a group, uh, the rich, who are taking more than they deserve. They're getting more than they deserve from the government, and we're getting less because of it. And this, um, this group resentment is actually you know, very powerful, and Piston shows that you can isolate every other variable. Taking the, the data that he subsequently collected, he actually got the aims to add class resentment questions uh, for 2012. And, and through that, he was able to, in isolating all the variables, you take a voter who is uh, controlled for race, for education, for region, for everything else, and just look, does this voter uh, evince resentment of the wealthy? They were much more likely to vote for Obama than they were to vote for Romney. In 2016, you do that same regression, and it's really statistically insignificant. Whether you resented the rich or not played very little role in predicting whether you backed Hillary Clinton or you backed Donald Trump. Because it, it's easy to forget, but Obama really did opportunistically pivot towards hitting Romney as this out-of-touch, rich plutocrat, this private equity guy who just parasitically sucked value out of productive enterprises, whereas Clinton did not do any of that really against Trump. The idea was that we were Stronger yeah, and together. at the moment that I'll always remember, I went to a rally for Hillary Clinton at the Apollo Theater in Harlem in 2016 um, as a journalist. Um, and when Chuck Schumer introduced her, there was this sort of tension because we're ahead of this, what looks like going to be a decisive primary. But they're so far ahead, they don't want to go negative or anything. So that Bernie Sanders was never mentioned. Um, and the closest that Schumer got to referencing him was this section where he said, uh, the other side is peddling a... This is so, this is so yeah. wild. <laughs> the other side is peddling a divisive, nasty strategy. Real Americans are being hurt by other Americans. The others. People from other shores. 
other religions, other colors, other creeds, other income levels. They think that by dividing America, pitting one against the other, their party will conquer. But Hillary knows that America is only America when we celebrate our diversity, um, which is like the most income diversity. Yeah, income celebrate diversity. our income diversity. <laughs> it's a land of many incomes, and it's it, it, it's almost a vulgar Marxist left parody of uh, you know what intersectionality uh, could become in the worst possible hands. Yeah. So this really is like neoliberal identity politics at its pinnacle. But that that same alliance of of social, racial, gender progressivism on the one hand and neoliberalism on the other, that seems to be in a crisis just as the alliance between social conservatism and more right neoliberalism appears to be on the Republican side. That's right. And I think um, there's many reasons for it. But one of them is that um, or this is one place where I am somewhat in tension with, with Jacobin's perspective, is that the, the, the college-educated base that Democrats have been building is not quite the, the constituency that their donors hoped for, um, particularly younger college-educated people, even ones who are you know, actually having some professional success. They tend to be more left-wing across the board. Um, referencing back to Piston's research, what, what he shows is that the presumption that if your income doesn't correlate with your uh, voter preference and class must not figure into your voting, he shows that that's, that's wrong because you can control for income level and people define the rich differently. But there are upper middle class people who hate the rich. There are working class people who will see those upper middle class people in their heads when they think the word rich and, and hate them. But everybody's looking, a lot of people these days are looking upward in anger. And so you have a professional class that, you know what, uh, even with uh, all their their privileges, they're not bought into white supremacy, or at least that they can be tactically, they can, they'll, they'll defend their children's schools from an infusion of socioeconomically disadvantaged children who might push down the value of their homes or whatever. Um, but they're not, they don't get that much psychic pleasure from from their identity as white. They get it from their identity as professionals. But so they don't have that sort of drawing them to the right. And then their healthcare premiums are going up every goddamn year while their wage growth is not uh, really keeping pace. Their childcare costs are insane, especially if they live in urban areas where increasingly all the good jobs are concentrated. The European welfare state, these are programs that middle-class people and, and uh, have supported for decades, uh, you know, in, in Europe. And so I think that I think that it, it's becoming a, a problem for the Howard Schultz's of the world that there really there there isn't a mass constituency within the Democratic Party for their worldview. There's disagreements about how left to go, certainly, but there isn't that much of an organic base for fiscal conservative economic liberal politics, um, even in these, you know, even among the demographic fiscal conservative, socially liberal. Excuse me. Yes. Yes. I think that's a interesting uh demographic that analysis that you just made though what I would add to it is that with the 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 dreamer movement concentrated in the the Latino community and Black Lives Matter concentrated in the black community that those are also two important poles of attraction that have pulled these so-called identity based issues around around racial justice away from their alliance with neoliberalism I forget who it was by. There was a great essay about the election of the first black president, you know, sort of the disillusion that that inherently created because it was this remarkable 
triumph for the anti-discrimination vision of of racial progress. But in in being the triumph of that vision, uh, you know, exposed the flaws inherent to that that model for racial progress because it fundamentally, you know, did not allow the large uh, majority of working class African Americans to gain significantly more autonomy in their control or, or, or better standard of livings in their lives. In fact, it happened to, um, for reasons that Obama was both responsible for and uh, helpless in the face of, it, it happened to coincide with a period of, you know, decimation of black wealth. And so I, I do think that that experience combined with the, the, the growing attention to police shootings, which not only target African-Americans, but, you know, disproportionately African-Americans who are not being served that well by our economic system has made it harder to ignore the, the material bases of um, uh, what, what heretofore been thought of as identity-based forms of discrimination. You argue that what this survey data on class resentment shows or suggests is that all politics are indeed identity politics of a sort, which in turn forces us to rethink these categories of liberal, moderate, and conservative that are so often used to make sense of American politics. You write, quote, the typical swing voter isn't an ideological moderate, but rather an American whose various social group attachments pull him or her in conflicting directions. For example, a white male union member who sees his racial and gender identities affirmed by the GOP, but his workplace identity celebrated by the Democrats. What does this tell us about how people relate to politics? What does it tell us perhaps about the oversimplification of how people relate to politics that so much of this identity versus class debate purveys? And what do the answers to those questions tell us about how the left should think about social and political change? I subscribe to a, a line of political science which suggests that uh really interprets voter behavior through through a social group model that that human beings were born into families communities religions classes to these social groups that that then shape our worldview um and the average voter you know uh does not pick the party that they want to vote for based on years of study of uh you know Montesquieu and Machiavelli and Marx and they arrive at their abstract theory of the state and then they look to see which party best uh represents their philosophical commitment they're born into a community and they see which party is associated with people like them which party appears to stand for the kind of people that they know the kind of community that they know the religion that they subscribe to and this is i think a really important insight and i think as far as it relates to the left, you know. I, I think that it's it's difficult because the the question of how we should approach identity. But I do think that there is a complementarity between, if you want to call it class first left uh, political project and the quote unquote identitarian left political project, which is that fundamentally we want people. I think we want to increase the salience of the class identity of, of that component of people's understanding of themselves. We want them to be more conscious of the ways in which the hierarchies that they live under oppress them and, and are responsible for many of the problems that they feel in their lives and the hierarchy that, that affects 
the largest number of, of people collectively in the United States is the the economic hierarchy, which cuts across lines of race and 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 and, and religion and et cetera. And so we want to increase the salience of class identity. Uh, at the same time, we want to, in order to do that, one way to do that is to try to erode the legitimacy and the appeal of uh, the white identity, which has been historically the indispensable resource, you know, the right's most valuable player uh, throughout American history has been white Americans' attachment to their place in the racial hierarchy, which not only affords them, you know, in the past, uh, at the very least, and, and, and to a large extent still in the present, uh, certain, you know, economic privileges, but also a kind of social and psychological break in case of emergency source of self-esteem, you know, which gets described <laughs> as last place aversion or whatever, but the, just not being at the bottom of a social hierarchy and, and having someone to identify that is lower than you are in in how society distributes self-esteem and, and, and value and prestige is a valuable thing and it's a powerful force. And, and, and it's been an obstacle to getting people to become fully conscious of that class identity and to privilege it above their other other political identities. So I think that they can be seen as, as, as part of the same project. And they should be, because I, it seems to me like what the neoliberal identitarians don't get is class and capitalism, but what the so-called class-first socialists, to the extent that they exist, but I've come to find that some indeed do, don't get is that class identities, as important as they are, have to be made too. And as you're saying, one important way to make those is to fight racism. Yeah, I think that, you know, where I get like semi-sympathetic to the problematic left um, is, uh, I, I don't even know, you know, I, I just think it needs to be like openly considered that that we do have this situation where we have a, a lot of reason to believe that um, that increasing the salience of class identity can help a left political project, and, and specifically in the near term, like that is good for Democrats electorally, that when you associate left policies uh, left economic policies with racial, with a racial component when you racialize them, which the right ceaselessly tries to do, white support for those policies tends to go down. There have been sociological studies and stuff where you you get white people to evince support for welfare until you've framed it in some way that's primed uh, racial animus, and then it goes down. Given given those conditions, um, I can see the argument for not compromising in any way substantively. On these other forms of disadvantage, but but giving a a privileged place place in electoral campaign messaging on the unifying um, dimension of oppression for the whole coalition, which is uh, the economic one. And I also see some argument for for things like not not alighting the fact that police violence disproportionately hurts Black Americans absolutely, but also disproportionately hurts the white underclass and 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 um, and that that it is not just black people who would benefit from reforming our criminal justice system, that this is an affliction that crosses racial lines and that there is some value in avoiding while highlighting the unique sources of oppression that these these marginalized groups and identities have in, in African-Americans most of all. It's maybe best to try to um, 
do that in a way that, that maximizes the possibilities for solidarity. And it's not always clear exactly what that entails. And I think that there is room for debate over, over how one goes about that in the immediate term. I think the liberal move on these questions is to emphasize solely the, the racially or gender disproportionate nature of any bad thing like mass incarceration, for example. The I think the left move is to show how that spectacular disproportionality functions to legitimate a system that is really bad news for the vast majority of people of all sorts. Yeah. Like yeah, I think black people are incarcerated at extraordinarily higher rates than other groups in this country. But that spectacular punishment of black people is what makes it okay to have the system that also incarcerates people of all sorts at extremely high rates that are just utterly abnormal compared to any other country on earth. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's, that's a, a productive way of doing it. One problem for the the left that you've referenced already is that we get so much public support on so many particular issues, but until recently, the label liberal, let alone the label socialist, was pretty repellent to a lot of people. That's starting to change somewhat. What's your take on the contingent ways that support for particular policies lines up with people embracing or rejecting a more encompassing political identity, particularly a left-wing one? Beyond the obstacles that we've talked about already, the the investment in misogyny and, and patriarchy and white supremacy across human populations, that there does seem to be certain personality traits or characteristics that, that there is a human tendency towards suspicion of social change, fear of, of, of radicalism and, and, you know, real psychological investment in the dominant symbols and, and narrative of one's culture. Um, that the people derive real meaning from being an American and from believing that their country is a force for good in the world or um, believing that this is the greatest country in the world and there is opportunity. I mean, I think there is there is some of, of that that's operative. But I, I do think that um, one of my controversial, I guess, positions on the left maybe would be um, that there is a way to construct the left argument using ideas that are indigenous to this republic, that, that one can, can keep, on the one hand, the notion that this is a, our country grew out of a, a settler colonial enterprise that was genocidal in its ambitions. And, and, and in fact, there are these ideas that have, that are already hegemonic, that we don't need to make hegemonic, that are already broadly accepted mainstream in our culture, which is the idea that among them is the idea that the democracy is a right, that we have a right to, to rule ourselves. I think that a lot of productive work can be done ideologically by, by taking what is already there, what we already say that we believe in, and showing what's actually necessary to make that ideal, that value that we espouse, actually real. Radical Republican ideology, which is very resonant in U.S. political culture, and which relates to Aziz Rana's argument about universalizing settler freedom. Yeah, Aziz Rana writes about this beautifully, as do um, other authors, including uh, you know this American political scientist Robert Dahl, who wrote this book, 
preface to economic democracy. You know, Dahl is a mainstream textbook writing type of political scientist who, you know, eventually came around to the view that just logically that if there is a right to self-government in a republic, it doesn't really make sense that workers would not have a right to self-government over their enterprises. And sort of in this very dry kind of mainstream non-socialist language, he wrote this little book that just uh, argues methodically that really if we believe what we say we believe, then we kind of need an uh, economic system of worker cooperatives and a mass redistribution of wealth. So yeah, I think we can take these ideas that we were founded on. You know, Before elites had to pretend that they believed that everybody was entitled to self-rule, the the people who founded our republic had a very robust definition of what it meant to govern yourself. And, um, you know, they argued that you can't have meaningful political autonomy if you don't have at least a modicum of economic autonomy, that, you know, you can't be expected to really be able to fully uh, exercise your will if there's if your subsistence is dependent on someone else's will, because they can make you vote the way that they want you to. They can you know, in modern terms, the what they're describing is a capital strike, kind of. And at the time, they used this as a rationale for disenfranchising the property list, because clearly they would just be the the servants of their masters. And so there's no reason they, we shouldn't give them formal political rights because they don't have actual political rights. They were interpreted regressively at the time. But in the modern context, we can take these ideas now that we have in the interim actually won the idea that that we're all entitled to self-rule, that that isn't, you can't have a legitimate political system where the majority does not actually have uh, the possibility for meaningful uh, political rights. If we take that and and take the intuitions that our republic was founded around, we arrive at at socialist conclusions. Um, You know, we can arrive at socialist conclusions without invoking foreign authors that the American people have never heard of. Well, Eric Levitz, thank you very much. Thank you. Eric Levitz writes about politics for New York Magazine's Intelligencer. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after remarking that the revolution can only draw its poetry from the future. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, sometimes once, sometimes twice. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky, our communications coordinator is Logan Dreher. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a nice review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also does that is you telling friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And the last but not at all least, please donate what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.